This morning, I'm continuing our series of talks journeying through the Bible book of 1 Peter, a letter that Peter wrote to God's people who were living scattered amongst cultures that didn't accept or agree with them. Living as exiles, a letter that joyfully reminded and encouraged these people of their identity as God's holy people, his living temple, where his presence could be found. It's a letter that urged them to live lives dedicated to Jesus in holiness as our right response to the amazing love that he has shown us. I'm grateful this morning to be following on from two excellent talks from Caitlin and from Sarah that have laid out what holiness is so well. And you can go back and find these on our YouTube channel from the last couple of weeks, the last couple of Sundays. Caitlin talked about how good the message of God's offer of a relationship with us is and how, in response, God calls us to be set apart from the culture of this world, to be devoted to God. And Sarah's message invited us to live holy lives, which she described as living differently by our radical loving of neighbours and our reliance on God for that way of life living in a way that helps to protect others rather than preferring ourselves, which is something we'll see again this morning. Living as a community of stones that builds trustworthy houses that let others taste and know that God is good. I really do recommend. Go and have a listen again to, to Sarah and to Caitlin's talks. But in this morning's passage, we see Peter continuing that challenge, but this week, Peter challenges us to practically point people to Jesus, even in difficult situations. This is a practical passage for imperfect circumstances. This is not general life advice or instructions. And as we'll see, Peter's main aim is that we, God's people living as outsiders amongst and alongside the people of this world, are to live as blameless signposts to Jesus, even when it costs us to do so. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, through to chapter 3, ending at verse 8. And my friend Lauren is going to read, us, uh, read it for us just now in the NIV translation. Thank you, mate. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering 
because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and his heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Thank you, Lauren. There's a huge amount in there, but as we travel through it, much more quickly than I'd like us to this morning, I would like us to keep one thing in mind. This is not Peter's model for a perfect world. This is not God's model for ideal working relationships or marriage relationships. And much of our Bibles shows God's concern for those who are oppressed and his strong rebukes for leaders who rule unjustly. In this letter, however, Peter is giving us instructions for how to live within the reality of fallen, difficult versions of those relationships in such a way that points people to Jesus. That's his concern here. The good news about the relationship with God that Jesus offers us is so important. So how can I live in such a way that the people I interact with recognise and worship God, even when it costs me to live like that. And although thankfully our culture treats women and employees much better than the world that Peter was writing to, there are still some practical implications for us today. The world is still not ideal. In fact, at the moment, of course, due to the COVID pandemic, our government has taken measures that restrict our meeting together, which are frustrating and painful for many. So what does it look like to live in a way that points people to Jesus 
in difficult circumstances. That's the challenge that this passage presents to us. So let's jump in. Right from the beginning of this passage, Peter speaks warmly to his fellow Jesus followers. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. He's reminding us we're not meant to be like the people we live alongside. We are that holy people that Caitlin and Sarah unpacked for us from earlier on in Peter's letter. Set apart, dedicated for God, living as citizens of a different kingdom, but amongst and lovingly serving the people we find ourselves alongside in this world. As such, we need to make sure we resist the temptations to compromise on the things that God has told us to avoid. In fact, More than that, we are urged to live such good lives amongst the peoples of this world that we are blameless amongst them. That even if they take offence at us and accuse us, any accusations fall flat in the light of our good life choices. Peter wants to urge us against anything that would undermine us living as signposts to Jesus. He wants us to avoid acting in any way that will distract those around us from seeing Jesus in us. That's his main message to us. Jesus offers us a mind-blowing, restored relationship with Father God and calls us to live in a way that reflects that wonderful relationship, both because it's the right response to God and because it's the best signpost to those around us to go and meet Jesus for themselves, which is his invitation to all of us. So in the following three sections, Peter has practical instructions for God's people that are challenging, that go against many of our instincts, but these are his instructions for how to point to Jesus in situations that are far from ideal. Firstly, in chapter 12, No, chapter (laughs) 2, verses 13 to 17, Peter instructs all of us to submit to every human authority. Now, whatever we think of government or our leaders, whatever we think of the laws and the restrictions that we live under, and so many people find the coronavirus restrictions so frustrating or painful, Peter urges us, not to blow the mission of living as dedicated signposts to Jesus by disobeying our government. Living outside of the rules that we're called to live under. We're called to be God's people living amongst and alongside the people of this world, not to be able to be accused of evil for political or personal gains. Not to think that because we're citizens of God's kingdom, The rules of the countries we live in don't apply to us. What sort of representation of Jesus would that be? For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We may be citizens of heaven, ambassadors for the one true king, Jesus, but we do not have diplomatic immunity in this world that we find ourselves in. And it serves Jesus' reputation poorly if those looking to dismiss Jesus can find evidence that we have represented him recklessly. Peter says, live as free people, 
But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So even if someone didn't think much of their government, Peter instructs us to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, to be law-abiding citizens because we are willing slaves to God. This doesn't mean that God approves of every government. I think we can confidently say that some governments in history have done some pretty awful things that God has been thoroughly opposed to. It doesn't mean that God has given up on injustice. The Bible is full of God's challenge to leaders to lead with justice and integrity. But this is not a letter to leaders. This is not a manifesto for how God wants the world to be run. This is a letter to God's exiled communities, minorities scattered amongst people who live differently, and it's an instruction to live in such a blameless way that though we truly love and fear God, we also show an honour and a respect to those around us that won't needlessly distract us from representing God well. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honour the emperor. We're blessed, of course, in Scotland and the United Kingdom to live in democracies where we are free to discuss politics, to criticise our governments, to hold them to account. And I don't think Peter would object to this at all. But let us do so with integrity, with honour with a voice that honours the rule of law and gives appropriate honour to those who serve in government, even if we disagree with them. Let's let our interactions with those who are in authority over us bring glory to God. Let our behaviour point to the love and the justice of the God that we serve. Let us not throw away the respect that we might earn for God on cheap or unseemly behaviour that undermines our living as dedicated signposts to him. Let us be blameless. Let us, as Peter instructs us, show that proper respect to everyone, loving the family of believers, fearing God and honouring the emperor. In verse 17, that's 17, in verse 18, Peter turns to address slaves with some instructions that make the modern mind balk. Can this really be in the Bible? What is God saying here? So firstly, we need to be clear what we're talking about. Slavery in the cultures in and around the Bible is not the same thing as the horrors of human trafficking that we see in the world today, or the horrors of slavery that the world saw during colonization. Slaves in the Roman Empire could buy their way out of slavery. People could offer themselves as slaves to pay back debts. And there are Bible verses instructing God's people not to put each other in that position. But even so, the existence of slavery of any sort is still offensive to our sense of justice and, I think, to God's. And so we still might ask, why doesn't this passage shout from the rooftops that slavery is wrong? The answer, as with submitting to governments, is that that is not what this letter is for. 
This is not a letter to leaders demanding that they change the social structure of the day. This is not a part of the Bible that calls for justice for the oppressed, that they be cared for and set free, though there are many parts of the Bible that do do that, loud and clear. And here's just one example uh, from Malachi chapter 3. So do not take today's passage's silence about the evils of slavery to be the Bible saying that slavery is okay. This is not that. This is practical advice for those who find themselves in the powerless position of being a slave. And Peter's advice is, serve your masters, even submit to them, even when those masters are harsh. It's bold. And I'm not sure I could give that instruction. Peter's instruction to slaves, as part of the mission to live such good lives amongst those we're alongside that they give glory to God. Peter's instruction is to live such good lives amongst their masters that even when they suffer unfairly at their master's hands, the slaves show a strength of grace that causes their masters to wonder. Verse 19 is tricky to translate. Uh, It reads in the NIV, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It contains a Greek word that suggests that this verse is connected to Jesus' teaching on loving those who persecute us. In Luke 6, 32 and 33, we read, Jesus speaking, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit, which is the same linked word to commendable, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. This is not one of the fun parts of the Bible to teach on. Jesus seems to want us to love from a position of weakness in a way that acts as signposts to our oppressors that God is real, that instead of fighting them as the world might expect, God's people are called to endure, to bear up under unjust suffering, to place our trust in God, to turn the other cheek. This is love and kindness as resistance to evil. In a world that says, fight for your rights, grab what's best for you and let others pay the price. And Peter's aside, between verses 21 and 25, is a curated mashup of Old Testament references that point to Jesus going through this very thing for us. Man, I wish I had time this morning to unpack this and explore it with you. But this this passage talks of Jesus winning back for God each of us through his own unjust suffering. It's a hard call. And I think practically part of the reason why Peter instructs slaves to take this line of humility and endurance is found down in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3, which actually I'm borrowing from Toby's talk next week. 
Peter encourages us all to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is an instruction given expecting that people will say, wait a minute, you're different. How are you enduring? Why do you have this hope? It's as if Peter is hoping, expecting that the slave master would realise that God would convict their hearts and grab them, grab their attention and bring them into his kingdom too, redeeming the master and slave's relationship in the process. But hang on a second. Isn't this the same brash disciple Peter who's always shouting up the wrong thing? Speak first, think later. Isn't this the same Peter who, when the mob came to arrest Jesus, whipped out a sword and fought, chopping off an ear, in fact? Does it seem strange to take such instruction to submit from that Peter? What an effect Jesus' death and resurrection had on Peter. What lessons Peter learned from Jesus' humble suffering and what it achieved for us. What perspective Peter gained from God about how his kingdom worked. That persecution and pain, though not something we wish for, can be moments when God's glory can break in and his kingdom can break out. This same Peter speaks practically into a far from perfect reality to the helpless slaves of harsh masters. And instead of saying, grab your swords, says, follow Jesus's example, even suffering injustice to serve as a powerful signpost to him in your own situation. From one tough topic to another, in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter turns from speaking to slaves to speaking to wives. Again, we need to remember this is a different culture. Wives in the culture that Peter was speaking to were seen as the property of their husbands. Powerless property. Is that how God wants husbands and wives to treat each other? No. I think definitely not. Jesus' view of women was radically, counterculturally positive and empowering. Relationships in the early church looked different to the world they lived alongside. And there are hints that in the marriage relationship of mutual submission in Ephesians 5, and even later on in today's passage, you can see glimpses of what God's hope and reality for us is there. But again, don't take this passage as God's grand plan for employer-employee relations or marriage dynamics. No, this is Peter speaking practically into an imperfect situation. And the situation was this. Women, as well as slaves, were meeting Jesus. They were having encounters with him. They were being changed. And they were all meeting in churches together. And there, these women found men who treated them differently, treated them well, 
So, should they leave their unbelieving husbands and look for a new one in the church? Peter says, no. His instructions to these wives, second-class citizens in their own homes, is to live in submission to their own husbands. So that, if any of them do not believe the word of God, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Peter's saying, wives, you have an opportunity to live as visible, powerful signposts to Jesus to your unbelieving husbands, to be a living pointer to Jesus who is blameless, to let your dedication to Jesus be a powerful challenge to your husband's expectations. And just in case we're tempted to try and shortcut this, to take, take the cheats route, no amount of beautifying, dressing up our lives with external stuff will cause the husband to be interested in Jesus. In verse 3, Peter tells wives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self with imperishable, unspoiling beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is not just a word for wives in Peter's time. Friends, Christians, having the latest laptop, smartwatch, gadget or fashion label will not point people to Jesus. Students, being the smartest, having the best grades, won't win your classmates to Jesus. A church having the best lighting or the best graphics or live stream won't point people to Jesus. Let's not dress up our relationship with Jesus with decorations that are perishable or fading, but instead with a gentleness that is peacefully strong with God's power, a quiet that speaks of God's presence. These things will point people to Jesus. This is not a dress to impress him into heaven. This is core stuff, the stuff of the heart that will point those closest to us to the God who lives within us. And that goes for all of us. And in this context, Peter is explicitly saying to wives, in order to point your husband to Jesus, to win them over to Jesus, submit to them and live in such a pure and holy way that they cannot help but notice it. It's a tough teaching. But women, before you wonder if God is really for you, let me also point out the challenge given to husbands which is an example of that system-shaking challenge God gives to the powerful that I was talking about a few moments ago. Remember, in this time, wives were seen by the world around these guys as property. They weren't useful for manual labour like men. They weren't considered worth educating and they had no legal rights to inherit anything. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 7 of today's passage, and I'm going to unpack it as I go. Peter says, Husbands, in the same way, live thoughtfully, considerately with your wives. That is, not treating them as property, 
and assign to them the honour, value, dignity that is due to them. That is, firstly, being respectfully gentle physically with weaker bodies, and secondly, assign to women the honour, the value and dignity of being co-inheritors with you of God's gracious gift of life. The whole promise we're talking about in First Peter. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. There is heaps and heaps in there, but let me begin at the end. Husbands, if you want your relationship with God to be real, to have connection, if you want your prayers to not be ineffective, you'd better treat your wives right. And that is as joint inheritors of God's great gift to you. That's right. You are both inheritors, co-inheritors. She has the same legal rights as you do in the kingdom of heaven. And you'd better be gentle as well as respectful. The enormity of that empowerment is lost on us a bit today. But in this one bit of today's passage that speaks to the powerful end of the relationships, governments and citizens, masters and slaves, husbands and wives, Peter has a challenge. Husbands, honour your wives who have been raised to partnership, co-inheritorship with you in God's kingdom. And speaking of God's kingdom, Peter's final instruction for today's passage is to the church itself, to God's people living together. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. It's a message of unity. God's people are to think together, feel for one another, love one another as brothers and sisters of God's family, with gut-level love, and to prefer each other over ourselves. That is how to be a community that points people to Jesus. As we draw today's long look at 1 Peter to a close, that's his main message to us today. Even when we're powerless, we can live as powerful signposts to Jesus through countercultural submission and set-apartness. We can resist evil and carry God's kingdom in painful places through compassion and humility where it's least expected. Those close to us will see signposts and may even, we pray, be prompted to ask, why do you live like that? The obvious challenge to us is, do our lives look like this? Do we spend the time with God that changes us, that gives us the strength for these lives of signposting, even in tough times? And what are we doing that might undermine our message and our mission to point people to Jesus? Taking the example of the current COVID restrictions, are we living blamelessly even in trying times? Or could someone accuse us in a way that undermines our message? Are we living as a community that honours those who are particularly powerless, those in need of food or friends? 
Do we blamelessly live, even as foreigners and exiles, to the culture in our world in such a way that points our lives and those around us to Jesus? I think this would be a good moment to pray. Lord Jesus, would you draw close to us? Would you powerfully speak to us? Would you give us the strength to lovingly signpost to you? To serve even in difficult times and places? In such a way that points people to you, gives them the chance to give you glory and to come into relationship with you. Lord, would you help us to see where our lives are not free from blame, where we are at risk of undermining our signposting to you. Holy Spirit, come and make us aware and help us to change these things. We thank you so much, God, for the good and loving gifts that you've given to us, especially our relationship with you in the first place. And we ask that you would use us as dedicated tools for you, even, even when that's difficult. Come have your way. And we ask this. Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake.